few months ago, my wife and I uh, felt the need to uh, get away together for a weekend. We like to do this about maybe two, ideally three times a year, just to get away, talk, and enjoy some time together. And so we love downtown Indianapolis, found a hotel close to the circle, found a great restaurant that we loved. And the highlight, though, of the weekend was a walk from our hotel to the restaurant. We walked along the canal. Wasn't a lot of foot traffic that evening. It was a kind of a cool evening. And as we walked, we had a really, really important conversation. The purpose of this time away together was just to kind of do a little bit of a reset, to you know, talk about the things that you don't normally have enough time to talk about. So as we walked along the canal, I said to her, let's do this. Let's just talk about the things that we're encouraged as it relates to our home, our family, our marriage. And then let's talk about like a couple things, just a few, that we're uh, concerned about or things that we're burdened about. And that little conversation starter led to a really, really helpful conversation. It was helpful not because there were any like earth-shattering new things that we talked about. In fact, it was helpful for the other reason. It was helpful because there was nothing new about that conversation. And yet it was really helpful to talk about us. Just to talk about where we are and what we're thankful for. Spend some time thinking about the things for which we need to be thankful. You know, like that uh, series that we just did on gratefulness. You thought I did it for you. I was actually doing it for me. When I see grace to give thanks. And then we also talked about some things that we just need to kind of keep our eye on and things we need to continue to grow in. And that conversation was super helpful to talk about us. Where are we and what are we about? And while there was nothing earth shattering about that conversation or new to learn, it still was incredibly helpful. I'd suggest to you that what's true of a marriage is also true when it comes to church. And what I like to do for the next two weeks, this week and next, is just to talk about us. What does it mean to be College Park Church? So I want you to kind of think about kind of going along a walk on a canal with me as we just kind of talk about who we are as a a church and to think through what are the unique graces that God has given to us as a community of faith? What are some things for us to be celebrating and some things for us to be thinking and praying about? Let me give you a few things just as as a starting point for some questions for you to be considering. In this church's history, what are the unique graces that God has extended to us? Another question. Among all of the gospel-preaching churches in our city, and there are many, many really solid churches that are faithfully declaring the whole counsel of God, what is our unique identity as a church? For that matter, why do people come here? Why do you come here? If somebody asks you, what's your church like or what's your church about, what three or four words would you use? And for that matter, God's placed us here in 2020 together as a congregation. We need to ask ourselves, what is our unique role in the city, in the country, in the region, in the Midwest? And for that matter, what's our unique role in the world? Well, let me put it this way. When you go home after a Sunday and you say this, man, I love my church. Why do you say that? And over what do you say that and celebrate? And then some things for us to think about in terms of how can we continue to grow and improve and 
You know, the church always needs to be reforming, always needs to be changing, because times change, people change, and spiritual development requires that sort of footing. So we could spend a number of weeks talking about this. We're just going to spend this week and next week talking about who we are as a church. What does it mean for us to be College Park Church? Let me start by giving you just a brief history. Now, this is important because most evangelical churches are disconnecting themselves from their history. In fact, in our modern day and age, there's there's very little thought about kind of where we've come from. And I just need to remind you that we all today benefit from those who've come before us in this church. We we sit in a room funded by people. Um, Some of you may have helped fund this facility, but many of you benefit from a facility funded by entirely another group of people. So how did College Park get to be here? It's actually a really helpful and God-honoring story. College Park Church was planted 35 years ago in 1985. Now, I don't know how the number 35 strikes you, if that's a long time or not of a long time. In church life, in some respects, it's a long time. Because there's good seasons and bad seasons and things of that sort. This church was planted by a group of Bible-believing churches in the area called the Indiana Fellowship of Regular Baptist Churches. You may not be familiar with what it means to be a regular Baptist church, but there was an assembly of churches who were trying to push against some of the theological liberalism and some of the other denominations And so they formed a a group of fellowship of churches, primarily in the Midwest, and for a number of years was a really faithful, healthy group of people, and they helped to plant this church in the northern part of Indianapolis. Actually, Bethesda Baptist was a part of that, now called Parkside Bible Church, so we owe a debt of gratitude to them. And the idea was to plant the church in this new and emerging area of Indianapolis called Carmel, Indiana, that at the time, in 1985, had 20,000 people in it. Today, 92,000 people call Carmel, Indiana home. The church called Kimber Kaufman, pastor in LaRue, Ohio. A Bible study, a Bible study was started with 10 families. And by the way, were there any charter members? You were a charter member, weren't you, Dale? Dale Shaw was. Anybody else? Any other charter? What's that? And Sarah Shaw. Okay, very good. <laughs> Dale doesn't want to be the only charter member, right? There's a special jacket, I think, that comes with that honor, bro. The church uh, started as a Bible study, and then eventually the first place that College Park met was in the Holiday Inn. That's what used to be there on that uh, corner of uh, Michigan and 465. Now it's been leveled. The church met in a room called Casino Room B. Isn't that funny? (laughs) It was a real gamble, but it worked out. Said that how many times? Some of you are like, here it comes. Here comes this little joke. Blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't too long until Casino Room B wasn't big enough and the church outgrew the Holiday Inn. They relocated to a nearby warehouse. In 1986, this particular property was purchased at 96th and Town. At the time, there was just 10 acres that was purchased. And over time, God gave this church favor with um, contiguous landowners who allowed us to either buy property or even in some cases were donating that property such that we now have 35 acres at this site. We also have another facility down the road called the Ministry Center, about 11 acres down there that someday we hope to use for some sort of community center or something of that sort. And so the Lord has blessed us with this particular property. In 1992, the first sanctuary was built. 450 people could fit in the first sanctuary. That's presently now where our offices are. And then in 1997, 
Another sanctuary was built that could hold about 900 people. That's where the present tree is and the nursery area that used to be a single uh, room where 900 of us met during the days. Um, attendance at the church continued to grow. Great staff team developed and the church uh, grew to about 2,000 people each Sunday. In the early 2000s to mid-2000s, there was a pastoral vacancy. Church went through some difficult times and our family landed here in 2008. After that about two-year period, the church grew by 1,000 people. We tried to pack all those people into that facility that sat 900. Some of you will remember those days of competitive seating. You had to, uh, I mean, come early. You didn't leave to go to the bathroom because if you left, people would like move over and take your seat, right? Um, we, we had to try and persuade you and spiritualize parking far and coming early and sitting close even calling gravel godly and godlier people parked out there. There was a stairwell that um, led to our children's ministry. It was the only way you could get there and it was about the size of a residential stairwell, uh, a stairway, and I called it the stairway of doom because it was a disaster. Eventually, we, um, in that growth, we uh, launched the Brookside Initiative and a number of other things and we needed to expand the facility but the Great Recession hit in the middle of that, we launched a $19 million capital campaign to be able to build this very facility, and God miraculously provided all the funds that were needed for that, and by the way, the stock market was at 6,000. A few years later, 2014, we paid off our debt, just a little debt, about $4 million, and rather than rolling that mortgage payment into the general coffers of the church, we then used that money, about $500,000 a year, to begin planting churches in our city. And since that time, we'd already planted Nehemiah Bible Church. We then planted Fishers, Castleton, Greenwood, and One Fellowship in Pike Township. At the same time, giving generously to unreached peoples. In fact, I did some figuring. Since building this facility, this sanctuary, we have had seven now consecutive years of Christmas offerings over a million dollars. One of the fears when we built this facility, would we then tip and our giving to missions would go down. Actually, the reverse happened. Our giving went up. So just a summary. Over the last 12 years, our church has grown from 2,000 to 4,000, from one congregation to six, from a budget of 4 million to 13 million, from an eldership of less than 20 to now almost 40, and since 2008, our Christmas offerings have totaled over $11 million. Church, I want to tell you, that's a lot of grace. And I don't say that to puff our church up or to puff our leaders up or any one of our pastors. But at the same time, I want you to realize that's a really amazing story. And the fact that we've been able to be a part of that together is really incredible. And we're going to be able to look back on this season of life that we've done together at College Park Church, not only with gratitude, but also, I think, with amazement at the way in which the Lord has helped us to make a difference in our community and around the world. So it's not only a lot of grace, it's also a lot of change. I mean, 4 million to 13 million, 2,000 to 4,000, I mean, it, it, that's a lot of change. And churches need to change. The fact of the matter is, if a church doesn't change, if it sort of takes a snapshot of where they are in time and history, the church kind of becomes like a museum. It never changes out of fear or, or, or just. So the church always needs to be reforming. Maybe some of you knew a church like that or you know of a church like that. Like they're, they just, they're kind of stuck in the early 90s and they, they can't move out of it. And at the same time, 
while that change is good and right, there are some things that really can't change. And those are things that you might call values, kind of the things that you express who you are. And those, those show up in 85, those show up in 2005, those show up in 2020. And so I wanna take some time here just to unpack some of those values and who we are as a church. If you were to go outside the sanctuary and turn around and look up, you'd see our mission statement and also our six core values that are on the bulkhead kind of designed to wrap around this facility. And those values were written by our elders as an attempt to crystallize both our mission and who we are as a church. They were a summary of, at the time, 21 cultural commitments that were great, but nobody could remember 21 statements. And so we, we boiled those down into those six memorable core values and then developed our mission. Now, to be very honest with you, every church has the same mission. It's given to us by Jesus. It's from Matthew 28, here it is. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Right there from Matthew 28. This is the mission of every gospel preaching church. It's given to us by Jesus. This is our charge. And yet, each church expresses that mission of that great commission in a unique way. And so we express Matthew 28 in a unique way, and our mission is this. We exist to ignite a passion to follow Jesus. This is our unique way of expressing the Great Commission, our way of saying this is how or in what way we embrace the vision and the mission that Jesus gave us. Why Why igniting a passion to follow Jesus? Well, because each of those words are incredibly important. Those words reflect some critical Um, dynamics that relate to who we are as a church. When we say igniting, the idea is this, that we're taking the combinations of things that God has given us, we're putting them together and creating something beyond ourselves. When it says igniting a passion, it means that our aim is that every part of you, your heart, your thoughts, your feelings, your actions, are driven to do something, which is to follow Jesus. And you'll notice, we'll talk about this in a moment, it isn't just for you to be a good Christian. It's not just for you to believe the right things. It is that you would follow Jesus. That's what our aim is. So igniting a passion in order to follow Jesus is the singular mission of both who we are as a church and what everything that we do here is designed to accomplish. Now, question, do we do that perfectly? Of course not. Sometimes, to be honest with you, igniting can feel like manufacturing. Big churches have a lot of strengths to them, but sometimes they can feel overly programmed, overly uh, put together. Sometimes igniting can feel more like extinguishing. Extinguishing a passion to follow Jesus is, quite frankly, some of your mission statements, right? Here's what happens, and I feel this weight as a guy who's getting a little older. Um, I, I feel the fire extinguisher on my back a little bit. And here's what I mean. Rather than being excited about someone's passion, my age and experience and maybe my wisdom could cause me to be a bit pessimistic. New Christian, and like, well, eventually they're gonna get over that, right? right? (laughs) Or my experience in life causes me to be maybe a little more inflexible, right? I've seen that, been there, done that, that didn't work last time, that's a great idea, but right? Or, man, I've seen how this played out in another church, 
I've seen how this played out in this moment in church history. And so as a result, out of a sense of fear, I could say, yeah, we could do that, but we're not, right? So you can, you can extinguish a passion to follow Jesus, which is one of the reasons why new believers are really important in the context of the church. So if you're a new Christian, listen to me very carefully. Older believers need you because we need your passion and enthusiasm. If you're a younger person in Christ, we, we need, you need the wisdom of older believers, but older believers need the, um, the, the sort of the, the new eyes with which to see what Christianity is all about. And one of the ways that churches begin to get unhealthy is when everything is just merely tailored for older believers. Younger believers help keep the church fresh. Older believers help keep the church tethered, and the church needs both. So, igniting a passion to follow Jesus, we also have six core values. Here they are. The preeminence of Jesus, the authority of the word, redemptive community, extravagant grace, biblical unity in diversity, and the call to go. These are the six things that from the very foundation of the planting of this church, these are the things that characterized College Park Church. And our elders put these together as just a way to distill who are we. This is what we try and do in terms of living out our vision and our mission of igniting a passion to follow Jesus. So let's just talk about these three. Preeminence of Jesus, authority of the word, and redemptive community. First, preeminence of Jesus. Now, I know it seems like a long time ago that I read the scripture, but let me take you back to Colossians chapter 1 and look at verse 15. It says, he, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is, verse 17, before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, what's the next word? Preeminent. This is an important book. In fact, this was the first book that I preached at College Park Church in 2008. And the reason why it's important is because this church was making the mistake that so many churches make, and it was this. In their pursuit to understand spirituality, they were beginning to leave the centrality of Jesus, and they were adding other things into their spiritual lives in order to improve on what Jesus was for them. So Jesus kind of got a little old or a little less culturally relevant, and they started looking at their culture and pulling things in and kind of mixing stuff and putting it in the middle of what it meant for them to be spiritual, and Paul wanted to call them back and to remind them, hello, this is about Jesus. At the end of the day, he's the one that rescued you. He's the image of the invisible God. We're working so that you would look like him and to remind the church that at the end of the day, everything in creation, everything in salvation, and everything in the church is designed to point us to the singular person of Jesus. So Paul's point is really, really important and very relevant, and it's this. You don't make Jesus the core. He is the core. You don't make him Lord. He is Lord. 
He's the first, the last, the beginning and the end. So when our elders put some language to this, here's how we talk about the preeminence of Jesus, that we are committed to centering our church, our worship, our preaching, our singing, our ministries, our discipleship on the only one who is worthy of worship and our allegiance. The main thing is to keep the main one the main thing. So listen to me. More than a religious system, more than you being a Christian, we want you to know a person named Jesus. Because for those of you who are Christ followers, when you die and enter into the presence of the glory of God, when the smoke of history clears, there's gonna be one king standing. His name is Jesus. He has nail-pierced hands. He bought your redemption, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the story of God's glory in the Bible. So, If you came from a really conservative church with lots of rules, I want you to understand that even more than those rules, we want you to live like Jesus. We want you to be just like Jesus. We want you to be just like Jesus. More than a theological system, more than what you know, more than what the historical background is behind a book, more than the meaning of original languages, more than your ability to explain systematic theology, more than your ability to even engage in the world and be culturally relevant. At the end of the day, success is defined by whether or not we all look like Jesus. I was with a friend recently and having a conversation, and I just was struck by how often he talked about Jesus. Like every time we were talking about spirituality, it was about the Lord and Jesus and how good the Lord is. And I found myself walking away being really exhorted by that. Because to be honest with you, he talked about Jesus a lot more than I did. I remember when one of our elders a couple years ago was talking with someone who had visited our church and then went somewhere else, he asked them, why, why are you not coming to College Park? And the guy answered, well, Mark just talks about Jesus too much. And you know, there's a lot of critiques that I'm willing to take and change and say, yeah, that's the thing to think about. That one, I'll own 100%. Because at the end of the day, talking about having an understanding of and worshiping Jesus is what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be. This is his church. He bought it. It's his story. And at some point in time, Jesus is going to return, and the full narrative of God's redemptive plan is going to come to a close, and it's all about him. You're going to be able to touch him and see him and talk with him and sing to him. It's about Jesus. He's preeminent. Secondly, is the value of the authority of the word. Look at verse 25. After Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It doesn't mean that there's some lack of, in Christ, but it means this, that when we suffer, just get this in your head, when, when we suffer, people see Christ in us. Like you wanna know what, it, what Christ-likeness really looks like? Talk to somebody who's enduring and suffering. That's what that verse means. He says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, and here's his stewardship, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to his saints. 
Verse 28, him we proclaim. What are we, what are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming the word about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So the second value is this idea of the authority of the word. We express it like this, that the Bible is the foundation of who we are, what we believe, and everything we do such that we are committed to preaching, teaching, counseling, sharing, and living by the sufficiency of the whole counsel of God because it is everything we need for life and godliness. Real life change is found in the spirit-empowered word, not our ideas, thoughts, or opinions. God's word is written in ink while our plans and theologies are in pencil. So to, to understand this church, you need to understand our deep commitment to the preeminence of Jesus and our equally deep commitment to the authority of the word. We believe that the Bible is inspired means that God wrote a book, and that book is the revelation to mankind that this very word that you hold in your hands or have on your phone or saw on a screen is the word of God to mankind, and that success in preaching and singing and ministry is not determined about whether or not what I say makes sense to you, as important as that is at one level, or whether or not it is either entertaining or helpful or thought-provoking. At the end of the day, the true test of whether or not it is spiritually helpful is this, is it true? Does it fit with the Bible? Because we believe the Bible is living and active. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that, that it's sharper than even a two-edged sword. It, it, it pierces soul, spirit, joints. It, it, it is something that penetrates hearts and minds of people. That means that you could read a passage tomorrow and read the same passage on Friday, and it actually could be as fresh to you on Friday as it's gonna be tomorrow. But the Bible has an ability to speak in a way that's not only powerful, but also authoritative. Friends, I trust that you know that in our culture, everyone has their own truth. And for our culture, that truth is found within themselves. And yet what the Bible tells us is that that truth within ourselves is flawed by our depravity. Meaning we don't know the right narrative and we develop the wrong narrative as it relates to ourselves all the time. And so as a result, here comes the Bible, external truth telling us what we're like, what God is like, where redemption is found, how to be righteous and godly people. And such that the Bible then becomes the guide for our thinking, for our sense of identity, for that matter, for everything that is a part of what this church is about. So that means that the Bible informs our theology, our philosophy, our governance model, our views on sexuality, our view on the men, uh, roles of men and women, on marriage, on sanctity of life, on biblical justice, on counseling, on missions, on parenting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That everything we do comes out of, well, what does the Bible say? And so success and the hope for life change comes from your proximity of your life to the teachings of the Bible. Now the most obvious application of this is in terms of preaching. To understand this church, you need to know that this church was birthed out of a commitment to unleash the power of the scriptures, to kind of get out of the way and let the Bible do its work. Martin Luther, one of the early church reformers, or the church reformer in the church reformation time period said, I simply, taught people the Bible, and the Bible did the rest. We believe that the possibility of life change comes from the truth of the word. That's why our regular diet on Sunday is to take a book of the Bible, walk through it, 
We don't do that every week, and even if we're talking about a topic, we're gonna find a text and be able to anchor our understanding in what does the text say. And the reason is that the authority for ministry and our ability to help you change is directly related to whether or not it comes from the Bible. So these two values, the preeminence of Jesus and the authority of the word are so incredibly important. We put them as the first two values by design because if you get the preeminence of Jesus wrong and you get the authority of the word wrong, you will get nothing else right. Hear me, you get who Jesus is wrong and you get the authority of the Bible wrong, it doesn't matter what the rest of your values are. And I can also tell you that knowing the history of this church, that in the midst of some really challenging seasons, 2003 to 2007, it was the preeminence of Jesus and the authority of the word that served as the preserving agency for this church. From a church growth and health perspective, College Park Church should not be around. And yet, praise God, the commitment to the preeminence of Jesus and the authority of the word were two things that helped preserve this church that it's even here today. And finally, you need to know that to understand our church is we are a combination of both of those things put together. And here's why that's important, because sometimes, often, churches are either all about Jesus or all about the Bible. They're all about Jesus. Like, they don't care about your theology. They just want to know, do you love Jesus? Do you know Jesus? That's awesome. So do we. Who cares what we believe? And there's other folks who are not as interested in Jesus, although they might say that they are, but practically they're more about what does the Bible say? And so the pastor might even call the church a class. And so the focus is on the content of the Bible. They actually act as if they worship the Bible rather than worshiping Jesus. And as elders, we talk often about the idea of both, trying to put two concepts together that often in church are treated as either or. And you need to know that both of those concepts are what we're trying to do. We're trying to help you love Jesus and have an understanding of theological depth. We're trying to help you to care for one another as you live out what it means to be like Jesus and also to do that in a way that's creative so that you can influence and impact the culture. We want to be able to take the best of what it means to love Jesus and the depth of what it means to search the scriptures so that your head and your heart are both reached at the exact same time. So success in our church is directly related to how much you look like, act like, and follow Jesus based upon the word of God. Our aim is to help you to be like Jesus. So preeminence of Jesus, authority of the word, third Redemptive community. This third value relates to how this happens together. Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. Notice there's both, both warning and teaching with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For to this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So what Paul says there is the aim is for people to look like Jesus and it happens in the context of other people coming alongside each other. That's really important because in our present day we have two things that make this difficult. Number one is the individualization of everything and the customization of that individualization, right? So you could 
have your own playlist with your own favorite songs. You have your own favorite things that you can shop online for. In fact, some of my friends are telling me that their new phones, even when they're not on, whatever you're talking about the next day, like on social media, suddenly there's an ad about the things you were talking about. It's kind of do 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 right? It's kind of weird, kind of spooky. I don't know if it's true or not. But we have an increasingly customizable environment, and yet here comes spirituality, which is never designed to be something you do on your own. And so the beauty of this value is that we want to present everyone mature in Christ. And that means that the church of Jesus Christ, that this church, needs to be a hospital, hospitable, a hospital, there it is, for sinners, a place where broken people can come and realize that it's okay to not be okay in church. Do you know that? especially in Carmel in the end, it's important for us to remind ourselves it's okay to not be okay. Now, it's not okay to be okay, not okay like forever. Like, you can't make that your cottage industry. You're like, I'm not okay, I'm not okay. Got the t-shirt, hashtag not okay. We don't want that to be your identity. But it does mean that when you come and when you grow, there are seasons when you're not okay and that you need to know that it's okay to not be okay so we can walk together in God's grace and to find people who know you and love you, people who you've covenanted together in, People who you've said, look, I'm a part of this body, a place that's authentic and real. One of the reasons we have formal church membership is because we want you to say, this is the body. Stop in the church shopping thing. This, this is the group of people that I'm identifying with. One of the reasons you need to gather regularly is so that you can know other people in the context of our church. And it also means for you to find a place to grow. So we want you to belong, we want you to grow, we want you to multiply. And by grow, we mean to find community, a place where through care and content, you're known and can grow spiritually. The biggest way we do that here is through small groups, but it also happens in Bible studies, happens in adult big groups or think Sunday school classes, happens in men's discipleship groups. Quite frankly, I'm not as interested as the program of community as I am that you're in community that you're not walking alone, that somebody knows you, or that when the bottom drops out, that you know who you're gonna call or text and say, man, I'm in trouble. So you may be here today and you're kind of in that church recovery program because that happened to you and you got burnt. And I want you to know that we wanna be the kind of church to help you to kind of come out of the shadows, for you to be able to be real, to be honest, and also to find what it means to have a thriving, growing relationship with Christ. On a personal level, during the third service, it's something we call Discover. I'll talk with folks who are new here, and I'll share with them that part of the reason that I love this church is because how it has helped, how the redemptive community of our church, like Libby talked about, has been helpful to my own family. It's hard to believe 12 years my family's been here. This is a place where my kids in their teenage years were raised. And you know, my kids follow Jesus better today because of this church. They know how to follow Jesus better because if they just base their following Jesus on their dad, it's not sufficient. I mean, it kind of scares me to think that my kids or my wife or man, for that matter, the whole congregation would follow Jesus like I follow Jesus. Like I'm trying, but... Don't, don't follow me alone. Follow other people as well. In some dark moments and difficult moments without counsel and advice from people in this church, I don't know where I'd be today. And so I marvel at God's grace 
and how I've been a recipient of that grace. I also marvel at the unique gifts that God has combined to make this church what it is today, and you're here, and you're a part of that story. And here's what I know. Because of who this church is, and because of God's story of grace in us, I love Jesus more today than I did 12 years ago. And for that, I'm really thankful. I hope that's your story. Our church isn't perfect. Having been here now 10, 11, 12 years, probably most of our weaknesses or deficiencies are in some ways probably my fault. But here's what I know. This is Jesus' church. He planted College Park Church. He bought College Park Church. He sustained College Park Church. And Jesus has written the story of this body of believers for almost now 35 years. And when I think of that, my heart is full of gratitude because I love this church and I love the way that this church has helped me love the preeminence of Jesus and the authority of the word in the context of a redemptive community. This is who we are. I'm just really, really thankful. Lord, we see your grace and we want to say thanks. We see the way that you have orchestrated the history of this church and how you have brought people at just the right time, um, people who stepped up into needs and people who bled for the preservation of this body of believers. And we want to be named among those who not just see this, but also recognize your grace in it. Help us to be a church that lives on mission, committed to the gospel, to reach our neighbors, to be able to grow in grace so that we can be mature followers of Christ in every arena that we touch. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.